Okay, would you please open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Today we'll be studying together the text that Eddie read a moment ago, verses 5 to 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. It's been uh, two weeks now in 2 Peter. Um, I'm excited about it. I, I didn't know how it would go at the beginning of this uh, part of Ryan's preparation for taking the pastorate of All's Chapel is to, um, while we're, we're collaborating together on this series, studied the book together, you know, worked on refining a, a purpose statement for the letter and so on. It was a lot of work, but it was good. And uh, it, so I didn't know how it would go because I've never done that with anyone before, you know, work together on preaching a series together. Um, you know, one mind can look at the text a certain way and another can look at it slightly different. And, but it's, it's been good and, um, I think he's been encouraged too. And I hope that you are with this letter. I hope that you're encouraged today because we are in a very encouraging passage here in the first chapter. As we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Father, it's the desire of, I believe, each and every one here to grow in Christ, to grow in godliness. And I praise you, Father, that in the gospel, we not only see the pattern for godliness in the life and the submission unto death of Jesus, we have the pattern for godliness, but also being united to Christ, we have the power for godliness. And we have the promise, too. And I pray, Father, that we would um, be encouraged and, and strengthened by your power and we'd be made confident by your promise and we would do everything that you in us that you have given to us to become increasingly godly. Not simply more moral in a way that even the world may commend us for, but make us more and more like Jesus. That's our aim and our desire, and I, I pray, Father, that this family of believers would pursue godliness together. Give to us in this time your spirit for understanding and for encouragement and obedience to your word and for true worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As Ryan uh, reminded us last Sunday, it was not too far removed from the beginning of all things that tempted at the tree of uh, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve stopped cherishing godliness and reached beyond godliness for godhood instead. And of course, in grasping for the godhood that they could not have, They lost the godliness. They threw away the godliness that had been given to them. And you know what a tremendous cost that there was. Without godliness, there was no more garden paradise for them or for their descendants. There was no more walking with God in the cool of the day. Uh, Apart from godliness, there was only ungodliness and hopelessness, the hopelessness of death. But immediately, amazingly, we see the grace of God 
And we see that there is more mercy in God than there is ungodliness in you. And there is more mercy in God than there is ungodliness in the whole human race. And so, as God promised, the, un, the, the godliness that we threw away as so much garbage has now been given back to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that Peter says, as we looked at last week, everything that you need for the godly life that you were made for, God has provided for you in the gospel of His Son. And so, as I said a moment ago in my prayer, in, in Jesus, not only do we see the pattern of godliness, but in Jesus we have the power for godliness. And as we saw last week, I, I actually need to read these verses again. We actually, we have the promise for godliness that we will, we have it and, and we will obtain it. We will grow in it and we will be full partakers in the divine nature. Let me read those verses again, verses three and four, before we get into what the portion that Eddie read. Hear the word of the Lord. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that is Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And as Ryan made clear last week, what um, what this life and godliness is, is what Peter repeats later on toward the end of verse 4, being partakers of the divine nature. That's the same thing. We already have it and we're growing in it and we will realize it fully when God completes his work in us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, again, we have the pattern for godliness, we have the power for godliness, and we also have the promise that we will partake in the divine nature. You have everything that you need to grow in godliness in the promise of God, in Jesus Christ. And you must grow. You must grow in godliness. It's, it's non-negotiable. Jesus Christ has called you not only to belong to Him, but to become as He is. So that if you don't, if you don't become as He is, then you don't belong to Him. Becoming as He is more and more, I'm not speaking perfectly in this life, but becoming as He is more and more, is the mandatory evidence that we do, in fact, belong to Him. If there is no growth, there is no life. And so having all we need for godliness, Peter makes it clear at the beginning of verse 5 that we must make every effort to cooperate with the work of God in us, and we must grow. Let me read verses five and seven, or 5 to 7 again. Join me in reading. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I want to clear up a couple of things before we get into studying these different virtues. First of all, Christian growth isn't perfectly steady. And it's not without regress. Even as there should be, and it's commanded that there be progress. And we have all the power we need for progress. It's not without regress. It's not without going backward. It's not without stumbling. It's not without making a fool of yourself. It's not without committing the same sins over and over again. It's not without being guilty of pride every single day of your life until you're in glory. And so it's not perfectly steady. From one day to the next, you don't see, you can't see an oak tree growing. In fact, come the wintertime, it actually looks like there's regress. It looks like, right? And we know that the, the growth of the oak tree dramatically slows in the winter, but it is going to grow. It's going to get taller, it's going to get stronger with every passing year. And that's what Christian growth is like. That something, sometimes, and even seasons, things aren't going to be looking so great. But there is going to be that trajectory ever upward to Christ. I hope you understand what I mean. Now, another thing that we need to clear up. It would be easy to, to misunderstand Peter's exhortation in, in this list of virtues. I'll give you an example of how it could be misunderstood. I don't know that uh, Benjamin Franklin looked at this list of virtues. I'm sure he read it at some point in his life, but you probably know that Benjamin Franklin wasn't a Christian. He was, in fact, a deist, which was quite common amongst his contemporaries. But uh, in 1726, when he was 20 years old, Benjamin Franklin wanted to improve his life morally. And so he made up a list of 13 virtues that he wanted to add to his life. And his objective was to tackle one virtue at a time. And once he had mastered that particular virtue, he was going to move on to the next one. Once he had mastered that, you know, and so on, until he went through his list of 13 virtues. That's not Peter's idea. His, that's not his... Um, it's not how he is exhorting us to grow and to pursue godliness. That we, because it could be read that way, you know, supplement your faith with virtue. So first I master faith, then I master virtue. Then I move on to knowledge. And once I've got that down, then I move on to, you know, uh, self-control. That's not the, the point. A lot of what Peter does here is stylistic. He's using literary conventions, and there's really nothing very significant about the specific order of these things. Like, okay, first I must have virtue before I can have knowledge. Or first I must be steadfast before I can be godly. That, that wouldn't even make sense. So there's nothing significant about the order except he begins with the most basic thing, faith. And he climaxes the list with love which is the greatest virtue, which binds all of the virtues together. Okay, just a couple of clarifications. Now let's get into this. How must you and I grow? We know that faith without works is dead. 
And so we must add to our faith virtue. It's not a word that we use very much. What does it mean? It really is a broad word, a morally broad word that encompasses all kinds of characteristics. I'll give you a definition. Virtue is, two words, moral excellence. In fact, we've already seen this word that's translated virtue in verse 4 at the end of verse 3. The word that's translated excellence is translated virtue here. So it said, Jesus called us to his glory and excellence. The word excellence is the same word as virtue. So how can, it's so kind of, it's uh, so, um, so broad. How, how do we pursue something that is really even hard to define? I'll tell you how. It's not simple, but I'll, I'll tell you how. Look at Christ. You want to know what virtue is? Simply look at Jesus. Look at his life, his broadly moral life. And all of the, the moral virtue and characteristics that made up the life of Christ. See his perfect love for God. His law keeping. See his perfect love for his neighbor. See that he could never be bribed by anyone. That he wasn't swayed by popular opinion, that his life was without compromise and it was of blameless integrity. And at the same time that he had all of these virtues, you know, uh, going back to the little story about Benjamin Franklin, when Benjamin Franklin thought that he had mastered one virtue after another, the one thing that he didn't seem to be able to conquer was his own personal pride. And the reason I thought of that was because I was about to say about Jesus with all of the virtues that he had, there's no haughtiness in Jesus at all, but a perfect laying down of his life in unwavering service to others, from the greatest to the very, very least. So what is virtue? The definition moral excellence doesn't help a lot. So let's look at the life of Christ. That's where we see what virtue is. Second, We must strive to grow in knowledge. We must strive to know Christ more biblically, deeply, and intimately, personally. The way that Ryan put it last week is, when he brought up knowledge, he he raised the question, is this knowledge doctrine or relationship? And the answer is both. It's both of them. So we must, these things are not in conflict with one another. Knowing Christ more biblically, deeply, and more personally, intimately. We must strive to know God. Make every effort, Peter says, to know God. If, if you strive for more knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, your reward is going to be temporal. But if you strive for more knowledge, to know Christ more, your reward is going to be very great and it's going to be eternal. I have often over the years commended books to you and studying to you and I think those things are so important. But as I, um, as Peter urges us to more knowledge, you know, I don't think that you should only study and only dig into the Word for your own 
soul's sake. But I urge those things on you so that you can help others. We must strive for knowledge so that we can pass on the faith so that, as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, mentor others and train them and disciple them. We need to do it for their sake too, to equip them so that they can know God. So we must strive for more knowledge, to to grow in knowledge by the power of God. Now, everything that Peter is urging us to grow in in this list, the, the false teachers that he's going to talk about so much, they lack completely. I mean, their virtue is just a show and it's very shallow. Their knowledge that they have is completely twisted and corrupted. And now Peter is going to commend to us self-control. The self-control that the false teachers have amounts to that of a two-year-old. I have my experience with two-year-olds. I know that they don't have very much self-control. I mean, that's what the, the false teachers were like before the temptations and the passions and the pleasures of the world. No self-control. Listen, I know when the temptation to sin comes, self-control is very, very difficult. You and I need to be encouraged. Take to heart the encouragement of the Word of God. Because if God has given to us everything that we need for godliness then we have in Jesus, not by reaching into ourselves and mustering up the strength of our will personally, but we have everything we need already in Jesus for self-control. God has given you everything you need in Christ for self-control, and this is big. We talk about self-control all the time, but not very specifically. I think it's really important for us to talk about I want to talk about it at length, actually. I'm going to pause here for a moment and talk about it. Because the world these days has no self-control. In fact, they don't think self-control is a commendable virtue. If you want something, if you see something that you think is going to make you happy and be more fulfilled, then go for it. By all means, by everything within you, go for that. And the world has so little self-control. So I'm going to give you an analogy, um, a sanctification, spiritual disciplines, fighting against sin kind of analogy, and it's incomplete. It's got holes in it. So you could very easily pick it apart, um, but that's, that's what you can really do with any analogy. If you had a, in an analogy a perfect one-for-one one to the reality, you wouldn't have an analogy anymore. All right, so bear with me, and I hope this is helpful to you. Picture yourself in a great wide room with a door straight ahead. And through that door, there is a second room, slightly smaller than the one that you're in. And in fact, from that first room, you can get to a straight line of doors into four more rooms. So you're in room one, Great big room. And then there's four more rooms, one after another. Each room smaller than the one before. Until that last room is so confined, you can barely breathe. People go into that last room happily. But they get sick there. And that last room is the action of sin. And sin is all that there is in that room. 
That's why there's no freedom to move around and you can barely breathe. The longer you stay there in the action of sin, the sicker and weaker you get. Anyone who stays there dies there. So you barge in there from time to time yourself. And you emerge again, relieved that you are out of the action of sin, but ashamed that you went in. Ashamed for the action of sin, that you would speak that way, that you would act like that, that you would do those things which in truth you really hate. The second to last room is a little bit bigger than the action room. That room is the desire for sin. And so there's only one thing that people do there. They just stare at the last door. They stare at the last door and they just want to go in. And this is where sin is imagined and fantasized for and sin is lusted for and it's plotted, planned. They believe that the last door is the door to happiness and so all they do in the desire for sin room is stare at that door. It's not the same thing as the action, but it is still sin itself. Again, it's where sin is lusted for and planned. The middle room, one room up from the desire for sin, the middle room is the room of temptation to sin. If you put yourself in that room deliberately, you're not there very long. You're transported immediately into the desire room. But sometimes you can find yourself in the room of temptation through no fault of your own. A thought to sin can come out of nowhere or you can see an image that you had no intention to see. You're suddenly tempted to pride, tempted to anger, tempted to covet, tempted to strike out. You fly back out of that room as soon as you find yourself in it and you will be blameless. But if you linger there, if you debate with the temptation, you are going to find yourself in no time at all taken over and launched into desire. And it's in that middle room, because you cannot help but find yourself there, as Jesus was there, tempted as in every way we are. It's in that room that you must learn to rule yourself. You must learn self-control. You must develop the habits to turn your thoughts immediately. Turn your eyes, turn to Christ, turn from lies to truth, turn from idols to God, and get out any way that you can, you must get out. Even doing things that the world would think are stupid, you need to get out. I mean, you might... I remember reading this about the author Randy Alcorn. He said that he developed the habit of calling his accountability partner and saying to him, ask me in the morning what I did. Call me up in the morning and ask me what I did because he was experiencing temptation. And by simply calling ahead and, and telling his friend and getting him to, to check up on him, he removed himself. It was an out of that room of temptation. Now, what are the, the two rooms up from temptation? Remember, there's five. The smallest, most confined one is the action of sin. All you can do there is sin. The next one up is a little bit bigger, but all you can do is stare at the last door. It's the desire for sin. The middle room is the room of temptation. The first room that is so massive is freedom from sin. Now, this is where my analogy is full of holes, okay? Because I'm talking about battling especially outward sin. And we know that we're not ultimately free from sin until we're with Jesus, okay? 
So you'll just have to, to go with it for the sake of a helpful lesson, hopefully. This room is called freedom from sin. It's full of practical safeguards and boundaries against sin that keep, keep you one more room removed from temptation. You turn on cable TV without practical safeguards like certain channels locked out or certain ratings and content locked out, or you have a phone without any, any accountability, or you go through life period without some kind of accountability, you are in the second room. You are in the opportunity to sin. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a more, an immoral thing to be in that room. I mean, because you can simply be with another person, a coworker or whatever, who gives you plenty of opportunity to sin. Maybe because they just make you so mad, or because they want you to spread all kinds of gossip, or, you know, whatever, or want you to complain along with them, or what have you. Um, so it's not necessarily a thing that it's, immoral to be in that room, but it may be foolish to be there. It might not be a matter of right and wrong, but it may be a matter of wise and foolish. And so if you're in this room simply because you don't have safeguards in your life, you're just going to find accidentally your fingers resting upon the doorknob of the door that leads to temptation. Filling your life with practical safeguards. Cutting off access to preventable sin. Keeping accountability is not a matter of closing in your world. It's not a matter of closing off options. What it does is throw your life wide open. Because you are freer to live as God means for you to live. That's why the, the first room is so massive. It's so wide open in that room that you can look up and see the stars clearly. You can live there breathing fresh air in the bold freedom and joy of the Lord. Self-control. Fourth, we must supplement self-control by the power of God with steadfastness. There are two other ways that the New Testament routinely translates this word as patience and endurance. Waiting is very hard and it's becoming harder all the time because of the, in a lot of ways, wonderful technological age that we live in. Um, delayed gratification has become less of a thing. We can have so many good things immediately. Right now I'm reading a book of a man who was in the fur trade for 30 years or so, from about 1864 to the mid-1890s. And he's in the, the remotest locations. They're uh, unreached by a railroad, inaccessible to steamship, and... So he writes letters to family, he gets letters back, but those, those letters, he'll get a bunch at once. A packet will come with like four letters at, at the same time. But he only hears from family then three or four times a year. You had to be patient. Those were the days of snail mail. 
you know, nearly literally. I don't think that it's good to give yourself every desire that you can have, even if it's a a good desire, is what I'm saying. I think it's good to practice delayed gratification and even just to tell ourselves often, no, so that we will actually learn to put off pleasures. In fact, um, I got this lesson pretty early on in my parenting, so I don't think my kids maybe have understood it, although this may help, but I make a practice of telling my kids no on a regular basis, just because. It's not, you know, can I have this toy? You know, it's just a little toy. And I look at the price, you know, it's only a couple bucks. Nope, (laughs) you can't. You have enough toys. Can I have this treat on the way home? No, you can get something when we get home. I'm not getting you this thing. And I tell them no deliberately for long-term purposes. I want my boys in particular at this age, I want them to learn no. I want them to learn to wait. Because if a child doesn't learn to wait, and all gratification is instant as soon as they want it, what happens? They're being set up in the future for all kinds of mess, addictions, and so on. I'm not saying this practice can completely prevent addiction, but I'm saying we're setting them up, and we're setting ourselves up for pursuing and being obsessed with the pleasures of sin if we don't learn patience and steadfastness and long-suffering and endurance. Jesus Christ is coming again, and we are nearer to our salvation than when we first believed. But Jesus is constantly exhorting to us to be patient and to be ready, to wait and to be ready. We must learn patience and steadfastness. Number five, we must strive to grow in godliness. As I said uh, toward the beginning, uh, godliness is not morality. It's not just something that anyone, say like a Ben Franklin who wasn't a believer in Jesus, could achieve. Godliness is true Christ-likeness. Very similar, obviously, to, to virtue. Let me just share with you one thing here. We're only going to begin to grow in godliness as we have less pride. We will only be more godly as we have less pride. The truly godly man, woman, and child will know that they have nothing to boast in in this life except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing to boast in except the cross. And every reason to boast in the cross. Because we have no true godliness apart from it. But in the cross, in the gospel... Being united to Christ, we have everything we need for godliness. We have the pattern, we have the power, and we have the promise. And so we boast only in the cross and not at all in ourselves. We will only be more and more godly as we have less and less pride. Number six, we must strive to grow in brotherly affection. Peter isn't referring to uh, just any kind of, uh, you know, family-like affection for anyone. He's talking about growing in brotherly affection for the church. This is one of the greatest joys in life. I mean, if there is anything that would be a preview of what heaven will be like, 
It's family-like affection in the church. When I first, finally, after you know a period of struggle, submitted my life to the Lord's leading to ministry, I thought that my vocational preaching ministry was going to be outside of the church. I mean, you know, like actual pastoring. I thought it was going to be look different from that. I don't know why, really, that I thought that. Probably in my immaturity, I thought that might be more glamorous or something. But um, after my freshman year of college, I got heavily involved in the church that I grew up in, for the, really for the first time, um, doing all, all kinds of things. And what happened when I started serving the community with the church and serving the church itself is there was something, it was irresistible. I just loved the church. The church became the love of my life. And um, I, there's no greater joy. I mean, normally, I don't, probably not every Sunday for one reason or another, not because of you, but n- normally, like this morning, you know, I can't wait for you all to be here. Uh, it's just being together, worshiping the Lord, having that fellowship, being in the Word together, praying together, singing together. Uh, sometimes while we're singing, I'll just pause. Like I did this this morning. I just, I, I was still singing with my lips, but I was thinking of you. I was listening to you sing. And it's just such an encouragement for the, to hear the people of God singing out their faith to the Lord. It's that brotherly affection. We need to grow in it. Finally, Peter says we must also grow in love. And again, love is the virtue. This is how Paul put it in Colossians. It's the one that binds the rest of them together. Without it, all of these other things are just a show. They're just on the surface. There's an appearance of godliness, but it's not the real deal without love. Again, we have received all love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not, we don't know love because we loved him first, John says, but because God loved us through his son. It's through Jesus laying down his life for us as sinners that we know what true love is. And again, there is our pattern for love and there is our power for love so that we might lead lives of laying them down as offerings to God and for others to point them to Jesus. So those seven, I think, did anybody count them? Good, seven, all right. I guess there, hey, we have the number of completion, right? Um, We have these seven qualities commended to us. And Peter says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to see that these qualities, growing in godliness, keeps you from being unfruitful, and it's also going to keep us, as we're going to see in a moment, keep us from ultimately falling. But we must grow. We must grow or we are going to die. Speaking of fruitfulness, don't you want that? Don't you want to be spiritually fruitful by the power of God? Jesus said, as you know, in John 15, that he is the vine and you and I are the branches. Every branch that is in him that doesn't bear fruit, the father who is the vine dresser, the gardener, takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And then Jesus will later say in John 15, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So God made you to belong to Jesus for the purpose that you would become like Jesus. Not that one is greater than the other, by no means. But he made you to belong to Christ so that you would become like Christ. He grafted you, to use uh, the Romans 11 analogy, he grafted you into the vine of his son so that abiding in him, you would bear the fruit of godliness in your life and with every passing season, bear more fruit. But Peter says, if we lack these qualities altogether, let's hear the warning. We're ineffective and we are unfruitful. And not only that, but Peter says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little bit warm. It's a shade after 12 and you might be tuning me out right now. If you need to, slap yourself across the face. Get the person next to you to slap yourself across the face because I still want you to pay attention to these last three verses. Anybody need to slap George? Anybody volunteer to slap George? (laughs) Okay, there's an interpretive issue here. There's, there's a question that we need to, to answer. Does Peter mean that true Christians can completely lack these qualities? Or does he mean that those who lack these qualities, that is completely, aren't true Christians at all? And as we talk about qualities, we're not talking about mere morals. We're talking about Christ-likeness that is by the Spirit of God. So it's the second. Undoubtedly, those who lack these qualities completely don't belong to Jesus. And Jesus cleared that up in John 15 when he said the branch that doesn't bear fruit, period, the Father takes away. It's thrown away. It's gathered and put into the fire. And it's burned up, Jesus said in John 15. And that's clear in many other passages too. So what is Peter doing? Why does he put it this way that it seems like they might be Christians? You know, this person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter is talking about people who are within the church. That's who he's warning about. The false teachers. They're present in the church. They're followers. They're in the church. They're there likely every Sunday. And they make a good show of things. But he is exposing these people because all of their worldliness from Monday to Saturday means that for all practical purposes, they have forgotten the profession that they made. Their profession is not accompanied by the practice of Christ, meaning they don't really have Christ. And this warning parallels what Jesus said in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. We've talked about this parable a lot. You remember the the parable of the seed and the soils where the seed represents the word of God. 
The four soils represent four different kinds of hearts. And the middle two soils are the rocky and the thorny. And they make a good show of things. Because they receive the seed of the word of God. Even with joy, Jesus says, I'm going to read the passage in a moment. And there is some beginning fruitfulness. Something springs up, but it doesn't last. This is what Jesus said. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. In other words, they make a profession of faith that will lead them and others to believe that they have been cleansed from their former sins. To use Peter's terminology, Jesus says, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And of course, these people are not Christians. If it walks like a duck, and it sounds like a duck, and it swims like a duck, it doesn't matter if it claims to be a dog. It's a duck, not a dog. Peter makes it very clear also that these uh, those who lack these qualities aren't true Christians by what he says in verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And he doesn't mean if you practice these things, you will never sin. It's not what he is saying. When he is talking about falling, he is talking about that ultimate falling away. Like, you know, the falling away that Jesus describes in Matthew 13. Someone gets persecution. They didn't realize this is the cost of following Jesus. People won't like me. Well, forget it. They fall away. Or the pleasures of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, steal their hearts. So pain or pleasure, either one, they're, they're taken away. And that's what Peter is talking about with falling. That alt- that's apostasy. Turning your back on Christ. They may continue to make a good show even, but it's false. So it is only by having these qualities and increasing in them that we can confirm our calling and our election. People who don't practice these qualities who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know where I'm going. You know, I believe in God. I'm better than, you know, whoever. I don't do those things. And don't have these qualities. They're not listening to the Bible. They're listening to their own flesh. They're listening to the whisperings of the devil, his lies. If our, if we are going to confirm that we belong to God, we must become like his son. We're going to have the biblical confirmation that we in truth belong to God. We must increasingly become like Jesus. And so Peter urges us again. Notice what he says. Be all the more diligent. Just like he said earlier, make every effort. This is important. This is not something. Growth is non-negotiable. It's not an option that you can ride the fence your whole life and keep a foot in both worlds. You know, the church world and the world world. It's not an option. He says, make every effort. Be all the more diligent. You know that pen is straining as he writes. Whatever he used. Feather, maybe? I don't know. 
This is important. It's crucial. It's not an option because it is a matter of life or death. If you don't grow, you die. It's not because there was true life that you lost. It's because there was no true life to begin with. The fruit of holiness is the mandatory evidence that we have been cleansed from our former sins. And here's the promise. I I, I want you to be concerned, but I want you to be even more confident because the promise is that those who practice these qualities by the power of God will never fall. You will be kept until that day. You will never be lost from Christ. Instead, verse 11 Hear the promise. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do you think Peter means by entering into the kingdom? What time does he have in mind? It's possible to be confused by this without taking into account the whole book. I mean, it sounds like what Paul says in Colossians, right? Remember this from Colossians 1? We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's conversion. That happens the moment you trust in Christ. There's been a transfer into the kingdom of Jesus. Peter's not talking about that here. He's talking about on the last day. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about when Christ comes back. And all through this book, Peter's going to talk about this day. In fact, I don't know if you've seen it already. Peter, uh, Peter, Ryan and I, lucky him, he got confused with the apostle. Um, Ryan and I haven't said it yet, but the, the title of our series is Until the Day Dawns. And we're taking that from verse 19. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's talking about the last day. He's going to talk about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and the day of God all throughout this book. And that's what he has in mind here. When, and he, by the way, the day is not a 24 hour period of time. Okay? The day of the Lord is the time when judgment comes upon the unbelievers of the world and salvation comes to those who are in Christ and the kingdom is established on this earth at last. That's all wrapped up in the day of the Lord. Peter says on that day when the kingdom is established on earth, all those who are in Christ are going to be gloriously changed to become like him at last. In spirit and in body. We're going to become like him at last perfectly. And he is going to give to all of his people the most generous welcome, the warmest welcome into his kingdom. If we're going to grow, we must keep the long view. That's the day we're living for. The world, and even many Christians think, I need to live in the moment. Live for the moment. I know some of what they're saying, you know, don't waste moments, sure, but we're not to live for the moment. We're living for that day, the day of Christ, when Christ returns. As Jesus said, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? We're waiting for that day. We're living in light of that day. We must have the long view. If we don't have the long view, we're not going to be steadfast. We're not going to have self-control. 
we're not going to be making every effort to grow. And so we must work at growing. Because the work of God, it's already been done for you. The work of God that's in you right now, by the Holy Spirit, has given and is giving you everything that you need to grow in godliness. To become what you were made for. To become what you were saved for. What God requires of you, He has provided for you in His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the assurances and the promises of Your Word. Lord, we we want to grow. Help us, Lord, to grow. I pray, Father, that my church family would take away a key truth from this message, from this passage. Whatever that truth may be, give and and plant something deep in their hearts that will help them to make progress in true godliness, to help them to grow, to help them to see new victories over temptation, um, victories that they just haven't seen in their lives regularly. I, I pray, Father, that they would have new power and new confidence by your Spirit putting into them your word. Help us. Give us your grace. We know that we, you will, and so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.